Okay, let's just say a quick prayer for David. Heavenly Father, we pray that as David speaks, you would really use him as your mouthpiece, that you would tell us what it is that is your will for us at this time of Advent. And I pray that by the end of, of, of his reflections that we really have a deeper understanding of who you are and what you're saying to us in this passage. Amen. Amen. Cool. Hello. <coughs> Thank you very much. Right. It's the 1st of December. So, who has finished all their Christmas shopping? Give me a cheer. Ah, <coughs> oh, no one. Oh, you have? Excellent. We've <laughs> got one person. Who hasn't done any of their Christmas shopping at all? Give me a cheer. Oh, loads of people. Oh, dear. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So today we're going to be starting our series, as we say, Journeying with the Kings. Um, and as we come towards Christmas, you know, there are obviously a lot of things on our minds. You know, we see a lot of stuff on telly. You know, we cry at the John Lewis advert, um, if you like that kind of thing. Um, but it's good to remember the true meaning of Christmas, isn't it? And the true meaning of Christmas is presents. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks is presents and the gifts that the, uh, the kings brought. Um, and the kind of the meaning that lies behind each of those gifts, because each of those gifts uh, is like a sermon in a single artifact. Um, and this week, where's our thing gone? Yes, it's over here. This week it's gold. This is my lump of... Fool's gold, try not to read anything into that. Um, but that's the first thing we're looking at. So, is it all right if I put it on here? Is that sacrilege or... No, okay. I don't know. Uh, so, who were the kings then? We'll start by doing a bit of context, which will carry us through the whole of the rest of the thing. Who were the kings? When I did my talk on Deborah in the summer, those of you who heard it, you'll remember that the first thing I said was that the judges from the book of Judges, weren't judges. And without wanting to become that guy, the kings from the three kings were not kings. Uh, they were magi, is how they're described by Matthew. The uh, king's thing probably comes from, I've written it down, Isaiah 60, verses 2 to 3, where it says, The Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So, tradition has linked that verse with our uh, passage today. But it's not a connection which Matthew makes particularly. You know, Matthew calls them magi, who were, uh, they were astrologers, they were dream interpreters. Mostly in the Bible, it's just used as a kind of catch-all term for uh, magicians and people who practiced pagan magic. Um, if you look in Daniel, uh, it says, Daniel... Uh, was asked to interpret a dream which no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner could explain to the king. And one of those words for wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner is magi. Again, in Acts, you've got Simon the sorcerer. Have you heard of that story? Um, who the early church was against. And also uh, Bar-Jesus, the Jewish magician. Again, magi is the word used there. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about these uh, pagan magicians. But we're also within the context of this story, I think, particularly, they're the Gentile witnesses to the birth of the Jewish Messiah, which is interesting because Matthew doesn't give us any Jewish witnesses 
to the birth of the Jewish Messiah. Um, and we'll have a think about why that might be in a bit. But uh, let's just walk through the story first and see what we see. So they saw the star in the east. Uh, they were in the east and they saw the star in the east. Why didn't they travel east? Because they, if they saw the star in the east when they were in the east, they should have ended up in North India. Um, the word for east actually means kind of at its rising. So the star rose in the east and they saw it and they interpreted that as a sign of the Jewish uh, Messiah. So that's why they traveled west from where they were. Um, and they traveled to Jerusalem and they asked this question. Oh, they asked, where's it gone? Yes, they asked this question. Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? An inflammatory question. A question which, when they heard it, King Herod was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. I think probably Matthew's underselling that. Uh, Herod was a mean guy. Um, and this kind of uh, astrological prediction was taken very seriously at the time. When Nero, uh, someone predicted using the stars, uh, Nero's death. And Nero's response to that was to start killing other noblemen in Rome in the hope that that would deflect away, the, the prediction away from him. Uh, Herod um, was, at this point in his reign, uh, weak, and he was coming to the end of his life, and he had ten wives, two of whom had the same name, um, and loads and loads of sons, and each one of the wives wanted their sons to succeed Herod. And he had... Uh, at least three of them killed for plotting against him. Um, there was a saying at the time, which was probably misattributed to the emperor of Rome at the time, which was, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons, because your life expectancy was better for his pigs. Um, so when it says, they came in and said, where is this new king? And Herod was disturbed. Um, that gives you kind of some idea of what disturbed means in this context. Uh, and so Herod calls together his, uh, his advisors, the, uh, the priests and the experts in the law, and he asks them where the Messiah is to be born. And I think the funny thing is they all know. It's like, well, they say Bethlehem, obviously. You know, everyone knows that. Um, and so when the Magi come and say, where's this king born, and they all know, why don't they go to see him? This comes back to what I was saying about why are there no Jewish witnesses to the birth of the Jewish Messiah? And part of it might be fear. Fear that if you're seen to be kind of falling in behind uh, this new kind of apparent usurper to the throne, that Herod would uh, exact his revenge for that. Maybe it's also something to do with the Jews simply weren't ready at this time to accept the Messiah. And certainly as you go through the Gospel which we will a bit later. Um, time and again, Matthew comes back to this idea that the Jews simply weren't ready to accept this king. I'm being nodded at over there, which uh, is encouraging. <laughs> um, and finally, I think there might be an idea of the Gentiles coming in and ratifying this king. It's like an outside observer kind of uh, like a, almost an invigilator, uh, kind of coming in and saying, yes, this is definitely the king. 
and, um, and, and, and a true king for the Jews. And so then Herod calls a magi in and says, go and find him and tell him, uh, and come and tell me when you found him, which should have flagged a red light for them, given what we've just heard about Herod, but apparently not because they had to be warned in a dream not to go back to him. Uh, but they go and find him, and they give him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then they go back by another route. Um, so those are our gifts. And that, then, is the context for the rest of the series that we are starting today. So gold. I'm not allowed to talk about the other two, but gold. What does gold mean? What does gold mean to us today as a symbol? Hands up. Yes. Wealth. Very good. Yes. Is, is that what you were going to say? You weren't going to... Oh, sorry. It looked like you were putting your hand up. Sorry. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Beauty? Yeah, definitely. Um, yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a kind of symbol of God's blessing. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, sorry? You can think of another? Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, yeah, the light of God. Fabulous, yes. I think a lot of, yes, hello. Uncorruptibility, oh, very good. Um, yes, that's one of the things I wasn't really expecting to come out of our kind of modern interpretation, but... No, 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 but, but it's, it's, it's good because that's one of the things which in the Bible it's often used for, is uh, uncorruptibility or also kind of permanence and strength. You'll remember in Daniel when uh, he has the vision of the, um, the statue, which is made of all different types of metal, and each one represents a different king, and uh, the head is the strongest, and that's made of gold, and then as it goes down, it gets weaker and weaker. So yeah, that uh, strength, uncorruptibility, uh, value... Um, and also kingliness, of course. Um, there are, I think I saw 440-odd uh, references to gold in the Bible. Most of them uh, are kind of in that area. Kingliness, value, lastingness. Um, so this is what they chose to give to Jesus that day. And the idea of gold as a symbol of kingliness is the one which is kind of handed down to us by tradition, isn't it? In the um, song We Three Kings, not kings, magi, um, but in the song We Three Kings, uh, the verse about gold says, gold I bring to crown him again. So that, that idea of being the king um, is kind of how we kind of view it through the lens of tradition. I think that's, that's probably right. Um, and if we look at the rest... Oh, why is it double-clicking? And if we look at the rest of the infancy narrative in Matthew, which is mapped out for you there, uh, we can see the idea of the king kind of runs through this. Start with the genealogy. This is the boring bit, which everyone skips. Um, or I'm sure when you did your reading the other day, uh, where, I can't see you now. Uh, yes, when you did your reading, I'm sure you didn't skip it. I'm sure you read it with gusto. Um, but this is Matthew, though, laying out his stall. This is him saying, at the very start, with a list of, however many it is, um, 40-odd names, um, saying, this is the theology of this gospel. And the way he does it is this. He starts with Abraham, which contextualizes Jesus within the Jewish faith. 
He says, Jesus was a son of Abraham, so a Jew. And that's important because Jewishness and Jesus' Jewishness is one of the um, important themes that we see running all the way through Matthew. In Luke, the same genealogy, or not quite the same genealogy, but the genealogy runs back to Adam because Luke wants to contextualize Jesus in the context of everybody. But for Matthew, he starts with Abraham. Then he has 14 generations, and he gets to David, the primo king of uh, the Old Testament, the kind of the golden age of the Jewish kingdoms. Then he has another 14 uh, generations, and he gets to the exile. That's a time when they stopped being a king. A time where, uh, when they, they were taken away into exile, and when they eventually came back, um, there was a very, very brief period of independence, but basically they were under, uh, if they did have a king, it was an oppressive king, sponsored by other governments. Um, Herod himself was uh, controversial because he wasn't, um, he was kind of half Gentile, so he was, uh, he was problematic for them. And so the exile is the beginning of no, the era of not having a king. And then at the end of 14 generations, you have Jesus. And so what this says is you have Abraham and then a period and then David, the best king, and then you have a period. And then you have the exile, no king, and then you have a period. And then you have Jesus. And it's the beginning of the new period, the beginning of the new era of Jewish history, and particularly the Jewish kingly history. Uh, So that's what the genealogy means. Why 14 generations, incidentally? No one's quite sure, but if you add up the name, if you use the uh, letters of the name David, and add them all up, they equal 14. So maybe that's significant. Um, Then Joseph accepts Mary as his wife. That's important because what he should have done when he discovered that she was pregnant was divorce her, because you had to get divorced if you were engaged in those days. It was like a legally binding thing. And what any other respectable Jewish fellow would have done would be divorce her. And he was going to do it in the honourable way. He was going to do it quietly, the lawyers didn't have to get involved unless the woman wanted to divorce the man. So it's quite possible for him to do it very quietly, gently. She'd go away and live with her family, and no one would speak of it again. But he didn't do that. He was told by God in a dream to accept Mary. And in accepting Mary, he formally adopts Jesus as his own son. Not as an illegitimate son, but as his own firstborn son, which establishes Jesus in that kingly line as a legitimate heir to the throne of David. So that's important. Then you have the village of the Magi, when his kingliness is ratified by these outside agents. And then you have this strange episode of the slaughter of the infants, when Herod flies into a rage, having been tricked by the Magi. They've gone back another route. He realizes that he's been deceived. And as we've seen in his character, he then responds murderously to that. And he has uh, children below a certain age killed. Um, But uh, Joseph and his family escape to Egypt. Uh, They escape that. And then at the end of the the infancy narratives, we have the return from Israel. When Herod dies in 4 BC, um, they are able to come back safely. Um, So that is Matthew... Uh, I think, equating Jesus with Moses. I think probably that's going to be something which gets picked up a bit more in one of the later talks uh, in the series. Um, but those first three stories particularly uh, show this, con- this kingly context 
of, of Jesus. And we see as we look at that, there are in fact three kings in the story, aren't there? It's not the Magi, but there are three kings in the story. You've got David, the, the, the great best king of Jewish history. You've got Herod, the oppressor king, the king which is a bit like Pharaoh, the kind of the ultimate villain of the Old Testament. And then you have Jesus, who stands in contrast to those two. And as we go through Matthew's Gospel, you see that contrast being drawn over and over again. You see in uh, four, chapter 4, verse 8, uh, the devil is tempting Jesus, and he offers Jesus rule of all the nations on the earth. And whereas Herod, who was hungry for power and was desperately hanging on to his power, would have taken that, and in fact, probably in the, the, the mind of the people in, at, at the time, that would have been some, they would have recognized that because um, Herod, uh, w- another reason why he was hated by the Jews was that he uh, paid for the building of pagan places of worship. He built this magnificent temple for the Jews, but he built lots of magnificent places of worship, and they weren't all Jewish. And so this idea of selling yourself to the devil to maintain your power and solidify your power would have been something which maybe they'd have recognized, but Jesus rejects that. Then he, uh, he goes through his ministry, and uh, a strange ministry for a king, a humble servant ministry, ministry of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Um, also a very limited ministry, not a ministry which is trying to expand uh, particularly far. We're still within that context of Abraham. And uh, Jesus, when he sends out his disciples, he sends them on a, on a, uh, on a healing mission. Um, and he says, do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep in Israel. Uh, and that's in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Um, and so Jesus is... <clears throat> staying within this context of uh, Judaism. But he's not anti-Gentile. You know, a few chapters before that, we have the faith of the centurion, who uh, exhibited, even though he's a Gentile, a faith greater than any he'd seen in Israel. So again, we see that idea of the Jews not being ready for this. Um, And Jesus kind of shows this frustration almost with why aren't the Jews ready? Why aren't they prepared for this to happen? They say they've been waiting for, for all this time. And why are they not accepting it when it's right in front of them? And I wonder if maybe Matthew, who's writing to uh, a community of Jewish Christians and was a Jewish Christian himself, was letting his own frustration with uh, the people group he'd grown up in, not accepting this amazing thing which he'd seen. And then, of course, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that at the end of the story, Jesus dies. Um, And it's worth, you know, kind of remembering that as we're standing at the beginning of Advent, um, on the horizon, we have Easter and we have a cross and an empty tomb. And so he dies, and maybe that should have been it. Uh, Maybe that would have been the end of that, that period of Davidic reign. You know, it's the new exile. Except that doesn't happen, does it? He rises again. And when he does, Matthew finishes his gospel. And I'd forgotten that this was our memory verse this month, so I was so excited when I saw this. He finishes his gospel with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we see that the 
what was set up as Matthew's theological agenda in the genealogy right at the beginning finds its fulfillment here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He takes the throne of David, the throne which was offered to him by the devil, but he rejected. Now, in his resurrection, he has given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. No longer the Jewish king, the king of all the world, the king with all authority. So this is an explosion out from what starts as a very small ministry, explodes out to the rest of the world, to us here in this room. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's the end of the exile, the end of the period when there was no king in Israel. And so what we see is that Matthew, from the very first to the dying words of the gospel, is saying Jesus is the king, and he's the true king, and he is the king of the whole world. And he develops that theme through the gospel. And all of that, all of that is summed up in one gift, gold. It's a one-word sermon. I don't know why I bothered. Um, all of that is summed up in this gift goal. So the question, I think, and this isn't just a question for this week, this is a question for the whole of this series, is what gift will you bring this Christmas to Jesus? What gift sums up your theology, what you'd say about the baby you see in that manger? Perhaps this is, uh, perhaps you've just had a baby. <laughs> and you, you are seeing... Uh, Jesus within, you know, it was interesting, you were talking about how, um, how the parents were inexperienced and were feeling like maybe they didn't know what they were doing, but God entrusted that to them. And that was, that was something which I am not a parent and I hadn't really thought about that. So how, what are you going to bring this Christmas, which sums that up? What about if it's your first Christmas, maybe, seeing the king in that manger? You became a Christian this year, maybe... And this is the first time you've been able to look down to that manger and say, that's, that's God incarnated into the form of a tiny baby. What gift do you bring that, uh, that says that about your faith? What about if you have, uh, this may be your 50th, 60th Christmas. What gift do you bring? You know, kind of your faith is as comfortable as a pair of slippers. But there's a strength there that comes from years and years of being able to look back and say, God was with me there and there and there and there, and God is faithful. What do you bring that shows that about your faith? And maybe this year's been really tough, really awful. Just maybe someone has been taken from you. Maybe just your world seems to be collapsing this year. And all you have to bring is the tears you've shed this year. And that's okay, too. Whatever you bring, though, what does it say about... The metaphor isn't important, but what does it say about what you see in that manger? I love that it says, um, they open their treasures. In verse 11, they open their treasures and presented him with gifts. And I love the idea that maybe they brought more stuff. But those were the three at the time which seemed the most relevant. So what do we bring? But note what they do afterwards. 
They brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and, having been war- uh, and they worshipped him. They, uh, yes, they bowed down and worshipped him. It's just before, actually. So that's our response. Whatever we bring, our response is worship. Our response is worship because Jesus is the king. And that's what gold teaches us. So let's worship now, I think. Yeah, amen.